So last week we got started off by talking a little bit about what is church history and why we wanted to study it. And we, we touched on some uh, actual <laughs> issues of the day, of that time, and even of today. And today we're going to start off in the early years. And by that, I'm talking about what most people would consider to be the kickoff event of what we would call church history, the, the fall of Jerusalem. And so, uh, but before we talk about it, I, I've, I've kind of let on those things just general questions. And this is a softball one because I've almost answered it, but what led to the early expansion of the church? Pardon me? Well, the fall of Jerusalem, but there's other parts as well. Persecution. I, mean, persecution. I think that's the word that we should all be looking at because of its relevance with us even today. We don't feel it really that much here, and yet it's still a topic of conversation for us. We have it uh, throughout history. But particularly in AD 66, things were getting pretty rough in the area of Judea. And so by that time, we've got our apostles that have moved out to a variety of locations. But particularly the Jewish populace was feeling a pinch. And I'm sorry if I belabor this area a lot because I just was especially fond of reading about the Roman uh, people and, and the fighting. And I don't know, as a kid, again, I just always enjoyed that. But by this time, those fellows in the area of Judea had pretty much kind of almost had enough. Even the Jewish farmers were in debt. So the taxation had extended beyond the common man, and Rome was regularly raiding the temple treasury to meet unpaid taxes. I use those quotes subconsciously just then and saw myself do it, which is odd. But um, So the other thing that's interesting is that Rome had installed Greek-speaking procurators. So the people that were in charge were no longer really very sympathetic at all to the Jewish speakers. They were, um, well, just the opposite. They were all in it for themselves, and they were willing to squeeze the people. And the people up in Caesarea had had enough. There was a revolt. It starts off, and basically in that area, those procurators took full advantage of it. And they went and sacked all of the, uh, the people's homes there. And the, the actual um, Romans that were supposed to be guarding both sides of this population completely turned a blind eye to those people in Caesarea. Well, word of that gets back to Jerusalem. And pretty much the exact opposite happens. We've got a lot of different sects. You've got the people that were like, we thought that this other guy was going to be the Messiah. We thought that that other guy was going to be the Messiah. They've been looking for some change. And they rise up. And they literally kill all the people in the Roman garrison there. And... Some people that had a little bit of, uh, well, you know, there's always those multiple sides in a fight. A, a semi-more friendly tone to the Romans said, let's be in charge and, well, we'll stop all this uh, sacrificing to the emperor. You guys just settle down. We're not really trying to break away. We'll see what we can do. But it wasn't enough. And so we have this this new general being gathered to come to the region. And so that uh, general was named Vespasian. And so I'm a, I'm a big fan of his, not because he was a good guy, but I just think he's got a cool name. And 
Well, he had four legions of guys to go with him. And so even a legion, we've heard that word before, right? What was a legion in, in your mind? We, we've, we've got like differing numbers, and they, and they did change. In the time of this particular time period, it's thought that a legion was probably somewhere closer to 4,200 people. But it did grow. The, the Roman legions weren't really standardized for quite a while, and the numbers did rise as, as few as 5,000 and as many as 10,000. By that time, Rome had also seized on this unique opportunity of saying, you're not a Roman citizen, but if you're willing to stud, uh, serve in our auxiliaries, at the end of your service, you could become a Roman citizen. So there was a lot of uh, interesting things going on. But uh, basically, it, it went on for seven years. And it was a bloody time for everyone. The Jewish rebels had gained that upper hand, and Vespasian was dispatched. And so he was a, a, a general after my own heart. He didn't just rush in and let people get behind him. He started off kind of creating this noose by capturing some ports and by slowly building this enclosing area around Jerusalem. And he had an interesting guy as his second-in-command. Does anyone already know who his second-in-command was? Good. I get to tell you some more new stuff. His name was Titus, and he happened to be his own son. And so that was kind of cool, right? This guy's walking in there, and he's got four legions of, of men that actually also had cavalry and some auxiliary people. And his son is with him. Well, also, at about this time, that was, uh, they were about 68. It was the summertime. Nero died. So just about this time, whenever Vespasian's like, well, I've got this in hand. Things are going to be okay. We're going to get these guys mopped up eventually. Nero dies. Well, guess who's kind of in line to become emperor? He doesn't come out and just drop his his weapons and head back to Rome. He's still working in the area, but eventually he does get the palm frond and he becomes emperor. And so he leaves his own son in charge of the area. And so, I, again, I just I, I think of this as this is a, a time period where we're, we have an especially interesting opportunity for us because we have a writer, Josephus, who many of us have, have heard of. And so he was a former Jewish general that actually we're familiar with, like I say, many of his writings because he wrote about the early church at that time from a particularly non-Christian view. So it's, uh, it's where we hear things like, uh, if, if this, man, this man was not the Messiah, he's, he's like, if he was not, he, he was surprised that it went the way he did. But he was convinced that uh, Vespasian was the answer to one of the to one of his rabbinical prophecies. And so he was actually pro-Rome and became a... Uh, uh, his patron was both Titus and Vespasian. So Josephus wrote his books kind of on the Roman dole. But um, So uh, if I keep talking too quickly or too long and you're like, hey, I've got a question, please do interrupt because otherwise... We could end hours early, but uh, probably not. 
But uh, so anyway, there was a, a controversial decision here. If you read Josephus specifically, he says that Titus, whenever he retook the city, was not really keen on destroying the temple. He was pretty kind to Titus in his writings of how he was going to do this. And so this is one of those moments where it, it dawned on me that this is a great lesson for us all in reading to make sure we are getting all the sources we can because there was a couple of hundred years later, so he had the benefit of time. But another writer, and this is the one that the guys that were here a little bit earlier got to hear me try to pronounce, Sulpicius Severus. He's got like a Harry Potter name. But he was a writer that came out of the... Uh, area of Gaul, which is now modern-day France, uh, and was writing from the resources he had of the Roman historian Tacitus. So this fellow is reading through the Roman sides, what the Romans wrote, and he says, wait, this is not what I read from Josephus. This is actually almost completely the opposite. He, uh, he and I'll, I'll go ahead and actually, re- I'm going to read the quote because I would, would goober it otherwise. But his story goes that Tacitus was very, very eager to completely destroy the temple. And his uh, words, he even he used the word eradicate, which he didn't use because that's the English word. But that's a translation to us was to utterly destroy the temple. And so it says, the quote was, So that the Jewish and Christian religions might more completely be abolished. For although these religions were mutually hostile they had nonetheless sprung up from the same founders. The Christians were an offshoot of the Jews, and if the root were taken away, the stock would easily perish. And uh, I got that quote actually from Spreading the Flame from F.F. Bruce, but I, again, I was just so surprised that most of my life I have read the works of Josephus, and he, he does talk surprisingly Supportively of the fact that there was a man named Jesus and that he was remarkable and that there are all these things that occurred. But uh, I never really read this other side that no, Tacitus was actually pretty much, again, thinking that he could put an end to this nasty little religion if he just got rid of the root. And uh, basically we have... a. Titus finish up the, the Jewish people about three years later at Masada. So if anyone has been to the, the Holy Land, uh, that's another interesting area that I've not been to yet, but I do look forward to visiting, not so that I can be rebaptized, but because I'd like to see the historical areas. I mean, there are some really interesting things that trees that are potentially still around that were from that era. So, and, and buildings, of course. So, uh, all, that to, all this to say that we had a, a group of fellows that thought that they could eradicate this religion and this uprising by destroying the temple. But by this time, it was too late. The Jews themselves had been causing a little bit of persecution to the Christians, and they had started dispersing. All this did was finally kind of put a... Uh, a stamp on the fact that the Christians weren't Jews, that they were from the similar beginnings, but certainly not the same in their current outlook. Uh, 
As a side note, the, in, in Rome, they didn't always just go into a place and say, hey, everyone become what we are. They frequently let the religions and even the, the culture of the area stay that area. It was somewhat uniquely in their interest to not make everything the same, but to make things better by adding it in. And uh, so Christianity outside of the Jerusalem or the Judean area kind of enjoyed a little bit of, uh, well, it's just that Jewish thing, and that's okay. We've said it's okay. So it wasn't that bad until uh, we finally get something called emperor worship. And that kind of, I think, starts off the... uh, the beginnings of the next question, which was, but just to tidy this all up, whether it was Vespasian or his son or, or a later uh, Hadrian or any of the other Roman generals that had come and basically tried to, to separate, none of their efforts did much more than apply more pressure. And what I would like to make us think about today is what does Christianity do under pressure? It flourishes. And so... Uh, that's kind of where this is going. So, what the next question that you, you're finally going, wow, that was just one bullet item? Hopefully that was okay. What was the chief request that was a sticking point with the early believers? perfectly teed up in the fact that they were polytheistic. They were cool with us having our own God. He just couldn't be the God, the big God. He had to be a God. And as a Christian, that's like the only thing we can't say. There is no other God but Yahweh. And so it causes tremendous amount of problems for these these Romans. They're thinking, there's no big deal here, buddy. All you've got to do is is deny that this Christ fellow is God, or he can be a God, we'll get through this. But they were surprisingly, um, they were surprised by the quantity of people that would not. So, Hey, John. Yes, sir. Just thinking, you, you, I may be still in your thunder, if so, just stop me. But just thinking about you know, how this, this is happening today, places like China, we heard about it last year when Bob Fu came and talked about how you know, they're taking down crosses in churches and replacing them with pictures of the you know the president. Mm-hmm. Like that. It's, it's not as if it sounds so ancient to us that a ruler would say, "No, you have to worship me." But it's it's going on today. I agree. Hope that's that's the uh, underlying premise for most of what today really is that what we have seen over the last two thousand years is still occurring, and this persecution. Again, I'm, I'm hoping to get your opinions, but I don't feel that persecuted yet. No one's come to me and told me I can't have a Bible study in my office on Thursdays. No one has come to me and said that you can't drive over here and, and worship together. So in my mind, I'm not that persecuted. Now, I will say that things are beginning to change around here. The, the tide is shifting a bit. But it's still nowhere near what it was yet then, but I'm sure that's what a lot of Jews thought in the early days as well. It's like, these Roman guys are okay. They've got these roads, got this nice clean water. We could throw all of our stuff in the middle of the street and things seem to happen to it. And, uh, you know, they were, they were impressed, some of them. Not all of them, but some of them. 
And so, uh, in any case, we the main crux of the sticking point that we had then, and we still have today, is who is Lord? Who is our Lord? And so we talked last week about the book of Acts and how it historically lays out the beginning days. The stoning of Stephen, you know, that's an interesting one. Even if you just think about it from the pure voyeuristically, here's us watching Paul watch them. What was it? Correct. But it's I not mean, just that. We, you know, we, we're not a persecuted church like in China, but it really there are several little things. That well, and I think that's a, a point of degrees today. Like if I were to come out at work and and be very sharp about there is no such thing as a transgendered individual, I would potentially come under some criticism, even though my office has a a quote from the Old Testament about the uh, workmanship being provided to the worker uh, back from whenever they were building the temple. I always thought it was kind of out of place, but in any case, uh, <laughs> like we'll leave that alone. But we still haven't been told we can't believe what we believe. Correct. I mean, that's it, true. It's a slippery slope and we may be close, but we have not been told we cannot believe. But you can be fired for believing, voicing that well, it's one of those things that you never want to uh, decide that you're completely safe. And I'm not saying don't say what you believe, because I'm 100% going to affirm that we should always stand firm in our beliefs on who our Lord is. But there's also this thing of, well, opportunity is, is when you need to look at it. When is the right time? But anyway, that's, I guess, another one. Because one of my big pet peeves is all over the internet put prayer right back at school. When was it taken out? I pray every morning at school. My kids pray before every test at school. Do I lead it? No. Can they stop them? No. So, you know, this whole idea that we're so persecuted, sometimes, no. We're, we're not. Yeah. Yet. And, and we're so. not feeling what we sometimes perceive we're feeling. So, at this particular time, we had this uh, beginning of actual persecution, where the Jews were the ones stoning Stephen, not the Romans, but that would change. And so, because of this very important facet of emperor worship that said, if Caesar wasn't your God, that you had committed treason. And that will be an interesting lesson for us, perhaps, today. And so we kind of also jumped into already, why are we so surprised today by persecution? I mean, I guess I'm surprised because it's like, I don't feel like it, but suddenly you get this little jab and you're like, 
that person actually is pushing back. Yes, Miss Grace. You know, if you truly believe that word, Philippians 1 29 says, For it is given unto you the help of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. And I ask myself, I believe in God. Do I believe God? Yeah. And I, that's a great one, and I'll follow up as well. Even in First Peter, we're told that we're to, re, you know, to rejoice in the fact that we can share in Christ's sufferings. And so we're, uh, we shouldn't be surprised, but I can see why we are. And we've got this nice little comfy area that I truly do believe is a little bit like the, the warm pot. The frog sitting in the water, he has no idea that he's later going to be eaten because it's just getting warmer a little bit at a time. Whereas if you were to place him you know, in, in hot water, he would hop right out. And so I do think that the, Satan has worked hard to A, minimize our belief that he's real, and B, to really tre- tremendously promote the idea that we're all in charge. And so if you look at the... yeah, I think we're also fortunate that we're in the area that we're in. Mm-hmm. Because I grew up in California, and 30 years... I didn't grow up in a Christian home. 30 years ago, at a job that I worked at, there was a young man that was a Christian, and he was trying... He was asking everybody if they were saved. And we basically ridiculed him. I mean, he was basically bullied, and because he was the only one. We were a bunch of, you know, 20 year, early 20-year-olds, and none of us were Christians. Well, today, here, most places you go, you're going to run across somebody that will either be a Christian or grew up in the church. Or, But I think in different areas of our own country, there's areas that just aren't... As friendly towards as it. As friendly towards it. Same way in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but in, in fact... It's almost, the reason why they call it the Bible Belt or the Bible Buckle, Texas has almost universally been a fairly friendly area to it for all my life. So does persecution actually equal growth? Hmm? All right, it's a reaction. Well, in... uh, one of the fellows that, again, you have this interesting progression of people where you have John, who actually was a, a trainer of both Polycarp and Ignatius, and beyond them was a fellow named Tertullian. He was a second century writer that recorded that the blood of Christians is seed. He said, Jesus Christ has built his church through the centuries by permitting suffering and martyrdom. Did he not say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Quoting from John 12. And uh, what do you guys think about that? Is, that? is that the case? I mean, was Christ specifically saying you have to have a bunch of people die for us to grow? What was his point in that? It doesn't seem to be a specific causal relationship. It seems to be if this happens, this is generally what occurs. So if you persecute the church, it generally seems to spread the gospel. Because people disperse, they leave that area, and they take the gospel with them. I mean, it's kind of a, a logical... I don't, I, it doesn't seem to me that there is a prescriptive, hey, you know, this is a really great thing that people hate you and persecute you. 
you know, go make sure you go looking for that. Let's all move to China kind of thing. It it seems to me, and I could be completely off, but it seems like it's more of a this is a this is what occurs generally when Christians are persecuted. I think that's probably right along the realm of what I was going for. Oh, go ahead, Monica, before we go on. Exactly. Was that James? Yeah. I agree 100%. But in a way, though, I do think it's by design. Because I think God saw the sin-fallen world and that there would be this animosity, enmity towards God. And so he's able and willing to do... His plan will succeed, period. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's not necessarily always that way, but it's definitely in in the situations where it has come up, God will use it. Well, and I think where I would would go with this as well, along your lines, is that we do have the example of wheat seed. I mean, you ha- it has to actually die in order to germinate, and so uh, it is. It is, I think, the fact that. If we're forced to make a decision, that's a gift to us. If we're asked what you believe, that's a gift. I remember one time I was in China with my wife, and we were getting to talk to people that were just looking to become better speakers of English. And I was actually asked by one of them, do you believe what you're saying? And I don't know that I'd ever been asked that really before. You know, it's like... We hear about the people that say, are you saved? Or, you know, where do you go to church? Or what do you believe? But to have someone earnestly ask you, do you really believe what you're saying? I think it's a good thing. And so, I know it sounds odd, but I think that's one of the reasons we should embrace challenges. And we should pray for those decision moments. Because without them, we may be very well left not sure of our beliefs. If we're just here because it's a convenient, comfy seat, or if we're here because we truly do want to worship our God. And uh, I don't think that really is firmly known until you are placed in that persecuted position. And so I think that's one of the reasons why Americans, we struggle a little bit with, are you saved? You know, am I a believer? We kind of worry about it because we don't have that person that literally is going to come kick in our door and throw us in jail if we say we are. For that reason, we have to make sure that we are uh, struggling with our, our beliefs. When I say struggling, I don't mean like, I'm not sure if I believe or not, but wrestling, trying to get meat, because otherwise we'll just die on milk. So, so this... Uh, That persecution equals growth brought me to the two fellows I mentioned earlier, Ignatius and Polycarp. Ignatius was a bishop in the church of Antioch. In Antioch, why was Antioch famous? Softball, another one, right? Yes? After Jerusalem was destroyed, Antioch became like the new base of Christians. You did those air quotes too, it's a bad thing. We should never do that. It perpetuates it perpetuates a craziness. But uh, it was also the first place that we were called Christians. And so, uh, and it, it was very uh, much a, a center of Christianity as well. Well, well Ignatius was, was, one of the weird things is when, when Paul was arrested and he said, hey, I need to be stood before Caesar, they took him by boat. Now, granted, he had a shipwreck and it, was, it took a while to get there. But that was perceived to be the most expedient, quickest, least expensive way of getting there. 
Ignatius was going to go before Rome, and instead of taking him by boat, they took him by Roman road, and he wandered all over the place. I mean, it was like he was an afterthought. He wrote like seven letters to different areas along his route. And so uh, some of those letters are very interesting. And they're from the perspective... Yes. Well, I was curious. Was Ignatius a Roman citizen like Paul was a Roman citizen? I believe so. He had certain privileges. And rights. Yeah. And so those letters have, again, that very interesting bend of the first century perspective that's hard for us. He was actually encouraging in one of his letters that you guys should be observing the Sabbath on Sunday, the day the Lord rose, not on the last day of the week. So that was an interesting thing for me, that you know, one of the first exhortations to follow your bishops or presbyters or elders was from him. He said, you guys should follow these men. Uh, he wrote uh, other letters that were, uh, the letter to uh, the Smyrnians, another place we we uh, read about in, in Revelation, was where he really uh, countered those claims of docetism, that, that Jesus only seemed to be human. And so, uh, you know, that was a big problem in his day, was this false teaching. And so today's crux of the lesson, final spoiler alert, is, is persecution and false teaching. That first century, those were their concerns. And they're the same concerns we have today. The only difference is, is I think today, we have it in reverse. I fear we have more false teaching that we need to be alerted and concerned with in our area of living today than the persecution facet today. But there are other areas of the, of the world where that isn't the case. But uh, in this particular area, Ignatius, again, it was like he had lots of opportunities to basically get out of jail. Instead, he continued on and went to Rome and ultimately was eaten by lions. And so uh, it was a different, a different world back then because, I mean, they, uh, they actually got to say things. You know how we have that? Do you have any final words for our people that we're going to, to kill today? They were afforded that same thing. And so his words were recorded and and he basically did, uh, as it says, uh, let's see, where is that? Yeah, that's all him talking about docetism, sorry. In any case, he, he basically was thankful that he was able to share the cup with his Lord. And the same is true with Polycarp. He was the Bishop of Smyrna. Uh, both those names, by the way, are interesting. Ignatius has to do with like fire, and Polycarp has to do with like fish. And so I thought it was kind of weird that both of their names are, were uh, uniquely almost Christian as if they were, were selected for that. But, uh, so if we look at when uh, Ignatius passed or died, he was around 110. And Polycarp came some 40 years later. And these numbers are, are rounded. They say 155. But he was uh, basically brought to Rome, and again, this is where they were so confused by why on earth would you guys be so staunch on this Lord thing? Come on, brother. All I'm telling you you've got to do is to say he's not. And uh, his quote was, I have served Jesus Christ these 80 and 6 years, and he has done me no harm. Why should I deny him now? He says, how can I blaspheme my 
king and my savior. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And so that's obviously an English translation, but that was out of the... He, we have a, a very fairly well-preserved uh, manuscript uh, that was written about him in the early days as well. Most of these books on Polycarp Ignatius, uh, Tertullius, all those fellows are public domain now. The hardest time I would say you'll have is finding one that's got a reasonable index that's not just completely bonkers because all caps is a thing apparently whenever they, uh, whenever they were recording these. And so, but... Uh, yeah. There were people that believed that Jesus wasn't real. That he wasn't a real human. Okay. That he was basically just a, uh, he appeared human, but he wasn't really human. Why would that be a problem if our Lord and Savior wasn't really a human? He Pardon me? He, he couldn't have died. He's not one of us. Yeah, he's not one of us. So what did they think he was? They had, they had this, in, this, uh, it's interesting, uh, syncretism, yeah, syncretism is the joining of your current culture and something else. Well, there was a belief because of that time, the Greeks were very big on the spiritual realm is good and that the physical realm is bad. And so there was a group of Christians that kind of took it together too far and said, I bet you Jesus wasn't really a human because that would have made it bad. So... He was just a spirit. He appeared like he was a human. We saw something. I mean, I kind of, it's like, well, he ate. And, uh, you know, so there, but nevertheless, that was the, that was the problem that they were battling. And that in particular, uh, Ignatius was very concerned with was that if he was not really a human, he really did not die for us. If he did not die for us, then we're all still in sin. And so, yeah. You know, I honestly uh, have never, I would assume that they did, but I know that the writings of the Christians had become, even in the first century, a coveted item that they did keep and, and, and would have had a collection of. And in fact, Marcion was one of the first guys to kind of, like I said last week, take a penknife to it to try and create these two separate gods of the Old and New Testament. But what he would have been of taking a penknife to was both the Old Testament and the New Writings. And so uh, I would think that they would have had the Old as well because our New Testament quotes the Old. And so I would think that the Christians of that day would have... They never set it aside. They continued <coughs> to, to sacred it. Did you have a thought? Well, yeah, because most of the Greek Romans would have had a Septuagint was the Greek version of the Old the, Testament uh, Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. or Hebrew. And yes, they did start passing around these letters. Uh, and with the Corinthians and the Galatians and with here, that's why we talk about various manuscripts that are out there because they kept copying these and who would accept what if this were really real because you have the Gnostic Gospels that came about and 
you know, the church had to decide, okay, no, this one's authentic, but this one is a bunch of hooey. And yeah. they would pass this stuff around to the other churches. Mm-hmm. Right. And, well, it was some of their history, because a lot of the people, especially like in, in, if you head to the to the west, those were not Christian or were not Jews; they were Gentiles. And so, in in my mind, whenever I've read this, I do believe they had copies of the Septuagint or the Old Testament and the New Testament letters together, because of the way that they're referenced. But yes, Mark. It wasn't until like the 400s that really... Okay, and then right now you're in the 100s, right? Yeah, well, between 100 and 300 is kind of where we're at today. But, but in fact, Marcion, the, the heretic, brought forth what he called his canon of scripture. And that's kind of when everyone went, oh, that's a really good idea. <laughs> we should probably decide on which one of these things is real. Because there are early writings, even like the writings of Ignatius and Polycarp, that were kept with the writings to the Corinthians and all these others, all these manuscripts were being gathered and kept in these little hordes of believers. And so it was, um, do you remember the exact time? Was it 460 or something like that, when we finally came up with one of the first canons? That I think that's about right. I mean, the, there were certain letters that were, especially the letters of Paul, the letters that were clear, um, Written by the apostles, and well, apostles. those were very rapidly adopted and regarded as scripture. So you have the Second Peter; Peter's already referring to the writings of Paul mm-hmm. in, in relation to the other scriptures. And, and Polycarp so, himself came up with the acrostic, basically that there are only four directions, and therefore there are only four gospels. And so he was one of the early proponents that there would not be, because there were other like Gospels of Thomas and all these others that were written by. Uh, by men and sometimes very earnest desires of recording the truth but they weren't inspired and they were not always non-heretical and so that was a challenge was making sure that even though Polycarp and Ignatius wrote some really good stuff it's not to the same level as the writings of the of the Gospels and Paul and John so. yeah, those, yeah like you said those guys they were Direct disciples of John. the Apostle John, and they're you know, I mean, basically, immediately their writings did not receive the same status as the writings of the of the apostles. And 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 truly, I mean, some of their early their their letters were epistle form. They were written <clears throat> to people. I mean, uh, I, like I mentioned, Ignatius. There are seven known letters that are pretty sure are from him, and then there's like another ten or twelve that people kind of pinned his name to. And so again, that's where it gets to be a little weird is, uh, and why we do have the canon that we have today. Um, and John, isn't the connection between persecution and the gospel is that, that by shutting down Jerusalem to the Romans, it sent the Jews and the Christians specifically down towards Alexandria and up towards Antioch, where they were centers of learning. Mm-hmm. And so with the church at Alexandria and in Egypt, they, they, they copied. The manuscripts became mm-hmm. very, very common. So by 300, you have bishops there, and that's what they wanted to do. Yeah, the, uh, next week and in, in, in soon we'll, we'll talk about some of those 
some of those early churches, to me, that part as well, it's fascinating. We think of the Pope as being the fellow in Rome. Well, before he was that, there were lots of others. So we'll talk about some of that. But kind of one of the, the uh, ends of Polycarpus, he was burned at the stake. He basically uh, refused to burn incense to Caesar, and so he was burned alive. And uh, it was weird in the fact that back then they... I think anyway, it's, I think we have a little romanticism in, in some of the writings of, of John Fox and some of the books of martyrs and saying things because according to them, John the Apostle was put in boiling oil and survived and therefore because of that surviving seeming to be miraculous, he was exiled to Patmos. Well, I didn't read that anywhere in the Bible. So uh, I, I don't know that that's anything more than lore. But it is interesting to me that I always kind of wondered why why didn't he get killed like many of the others. But if you're interested on how and when and where they died, Fox's Book of Martyrs has the first, all the apostles, kind of where they went and how they perished. And that kind of circles back to what we started off talking about. I mean, that seems like such a small thing to be persecuted for. Burning incense to Caesar, like, incense is cheap. Stick it in a corner. But look at how they were unwilling. I mean, and today the question is, is how are we gearing ourselves to allow ourselves to be uh, doing that? So, On that level of faithfulness is what the church, what God built the church on. I mean, he, he, the, there, it was a no compromise situation because had there been compromise, it would have been watered down very quickly and, and absorbed into the polytheism of the day and it would mm-hmm. disappear. And I think the other thing that to put the pouch further sealed is I, I countered to you, we have this issue today of truth where people are trying to tell you that one thing is another. I hate the fact, I remember whenever Michael Jackson's uh, song Bad came out. I was appalled. It's like, how on earth do we have a song now where bad is good? But that, yeah. That is our world. They continue to try to find a way to make that which is true not true. And so we have an opportunity now to not belligerently uh, go out and find people and club them, but to do like these fellows did, which is take every opportunity to tell the truth, to take the long road. Ignatius, very circuitous time, the entire time he was there, telling the truth. In fact, they say whenever he was martyred, that his jailer was martyred with him, because by that time he had become a believer. And so, that story is repeated over and over again. And those are relational. You know, uh, the fellows did not just show up one day and say, this is the truth, and the unbeliever go, oh yeah, I like that. No, it was typically that they had grown to see the truth in that person, and that's what we today still have an opportunity to do in our regular jobs and in our regular lives is shine that truth. But be prepared because the one thing that I do truly believe in my heart is is the only reason they died the way they died is because it was true historically. We have this real Savior that did die, right? If that had been a fiction, you wouldn't have this many people dying over it. And uh, we didn't, I guess we'll have to stop today. And we'll, we'll, the, the city of Lyon is in France, or in Gaul. And I guess we'll start there next week real quick. And that's where uh, 
Actually, I, I misquoted. It wasn't Ignatius, it was Arrhenius that said that there are only four directions and therefore there are only four Gospels. But uh, I, just, uh, I just, I marvel at the, at the degree of strength these people had. And it wasn't just men. It was, it was children and it was even women. There were people in these days before the 300s that were literally a man, the, the head of the household would be asked, do you believe? And whenever he said he did, they would take his children and they would be, sac- they would be martyred in front of him until he finally died as well. And so, we'll, uh, I had intended to start next week with uh, 200 and so... Uh, I really do hate to leave out Arrhenius, but uh, so we'll we'll see. But anyway, thank you very much for your opportunity to talk to you. And shall we pray? Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you've given us your word and that you've given us your spirit. We pray, Lord, for your spirit now to enable us to worship you rightly in this coming hour. We pray for opportunities, Lord, to glorify you and for us to carry your gospel throughout our lives and to the world around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.